So good to see this good number here tonight. Appreciate very much your presence. We have each time I've tried at least to remember each time to thank all of the members of this congregation for being present. And we certainly do that again tonight and express our appreciation to all of you that are visiting for being here, for giving of your time tonight to come out and support this congregation in this effort. I know they appreciate your presence and I would expect and assume that they will reciprocate when your meetings and special opportunities come around that they can come your way and help you and support you and to further knit our hearts together in love and the service that we're endeavoring to render to the community and the honor we're endeavoring to give to God. We appreciate so very much your presence tonight. Enjoyed the time I was able to spend with the elders and their wives tonight and brother and sister Bobby in the home of the Mayberries. Had a good meal and we enjoyed that very much. I don't know who catered it, but it was an awfully good meal. <laughs> I'm being facetious now. <laughs> if they don't already know, I think they do. I like to pick and uh, have fun, but I do appreciate very much their hospitality. And uh, I would like to ask a favor of the church here. Maybe this coming Sunday or whenever we can arrange it, I'd like to take Randy uh, back to Rome and let him introduce me sometime. Uh, I sit over there and listen to him introducing the speaker, and I think, I can't wait to hear this guy. And then I think, he's talking about me. What He, he obviously doesn't know who he's introducing. But I appreciate him very much. And then I thought on the way home last night, I'm going to take him home and get him to introduce me to my wife. I believe he can make, even make her excited to see me. Glad to have me around. So I want to bore him sometime, and I don't have to have him on a Sunday to introduce him to my wife, but sometime maybe if you can loan him out, I'd like to take him home with me and use him to boost my reputation around in the area a little bit. It needs all the help he can get. But I appreciate him a great deal. I had not met him before uh, Sunday. I'd heard of him and knew of him. I appreciate him and his family and the good work all of you are doing here together. Thank you all for being here tonight. And I appreciate our song leaders. They've been doing an excellent job in leading the singing. And I appreciate that and appreciate the way you join in and follow with them and sing out. Sitting up here on the front, it, it rings out loud and clear. And I've noticed that uh, you help the song leader because about all they need to do is call out the number and clear their throat and off you go. And that's the way it ought to be. We're glad for that. In Mark chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, and Matthew chapter 17, there is an event that takes place in the life of Christ that those three biographers of our Lord record for us. That is the time of the transfiguration when Jesus went up into a mountain apart, took Peter, James, and John with them and by themselves, and uh, there was transfigured in their presence. And there are a lot of questions that we can raise about the transfiguration and about uh, those three men, why he took those three. Some say because they were that inner circle, and that may well be true. It may also be that they needed more encouragement and help than others. You know, sometimes uh, some individuals need a little more special attention, and they may have very well needed that more so than the others. Whatever the reason, Jesus took these three, and there he was transfigured in their presence. As you have, reading the description, for example, in Mark, where he talks about him shining so bright that even a fuller could not get him as, get, get it that white, his garment. Uh, I try to imagine what that might have, might have looked like, what it might have been like to be there and see that. Undoubtedly, it was a very impressive sight to behold. As Peter, James, and John see that, Peter, out of fear, not knowing what to say, Mark tells us, 
suggested that we build here three tabernacles. He said, Master, it's good to be here. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I don't know how he knew it was Moses and Elijah. He'd never seen them. Their bodies had long since been in the grave wherever Moses was buried. Elijah, of course, was translated into heaven in the fiery chariot or chariot as a fire. He'd never seen either one of them, their physical appearance. And I don't know if there was something that Jesus said, maybe calling them by name, or something that they said in the conversation that made it known unto Peter, James, and John who they were. But Peter knew, and he said, let's build three tabernacles, one to you, one to Moses, and one to Elijah. And, of course, the Lord appeared. Uh, God spoke from heaven on that occasion and said concerning Jesus, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. Must have been a great occasion to have been there. And no doubt when Peter, James, and John had to come with Jesus down out of that mountain and go back about life, must have been uh, a little bit uh, mundane is maybe too graphic a word and an over-exaggeration, but uh, life must have seemed very uh, different after being up on that mount and seeing Jesus transfigured. And then you read over in Matthew chapter 26, for example, about the occasion when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples and instituted the Lord's Supper there as he ate the Passover meal just before his crucifixion. And wouldn't it have been wonderful if you could have just stayed in that upper room from then on and never leave? And it's a little bit like I would suggest what we're doing here tonight. It would be grand if we could do nothing in life but be in these assemblies and worship God. And this is a foretaste of something of what heaven will be like, except there we'll not have the limitations of these physical bodies. We'll not have other things that demand our time and attention. In heaven, we won't have anything to do ever again but for all eternity to praise and to serve God therein. And I'd like to remind all of us that the only thing that's going to change as we go from this world to the eternal world is our outward appearance, our body. The mortal will be changed to immortal, the corruptible to incorruptible, but our attitudes and our dispositions and our character and our conduct will all follow us. And if you or I do not enjoy being in an assembly like this tonight and doing what we're doing, you wouldn't enjoy heaven if you could get there. If you don't love studying the Bible and love serving God in any and every capacity, you won't enjoy heaven if you could somehow get in. Because the only thing that's going to change is your physical appearance. Your heart and mind will be just what it is then as it is now. And so this is kind of a foretaste of heaven. But we cannot spend all of our time in assemblies as great as they are. There are other things in life that demand our attention and our time and other ways about which we go about serving God. I said all of that and mentioned those three things to, to begin to think about our lesson tonight. And that is... Can we take Christianity out of the confines of this building, these assemblies, and go out to your workplace, into your home, to the schoolhouse where you are, uh, as the case may be, to the ball fields as we go about our recreation? Can we take Christianity out there and practice it in its purity, in its simplicity, and see it be effective and work? The premise of this lesson is to suggest indeed we can and we must. I've known a few people that have been bold enough to say when we think about living the Christian life that what we're doing here is all well and good and it's, it's fine to talk about Christian living and godliness, but preacher, when you go out to where I work, you just can't do that. It won't work. You won't survive. 
Or if you go into the schoolhouse where I have to go and you see the people with whom I have to deal, you just can't do it. You can't live the Christian life. And I want to suggest you can. And I want to suggest we must. And what I want you to do with me tonight is go to the first chapter of the book of Daniel. And Bible students will already see, I think, the connection that we're going to make. We're going to look at four Hebrew men, Israelite men, who find themselves in a situation not of their own making. And yet they maintain their integrity in their godliness and in their faith to God. And they demonstrate for us that Christianity and that principles of godliness are not something that have to be relegated to a religious service or just to one little segment and aspect of our life. But you can take these things and live them out and apply them in life and they will work. Now I do not mean to suggest that if you do uh, what we're talking about tonight, if you live the Christian life, that you won't suffer, that you won't have it hard at times, you most certainly will. But so did these men. We're talking about Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're, they're Israelite, they're Hebrew names. And you know those men. You've studied about them before. But if I were giving this lesson a title, I suppose I would entitle it a marketplace religion. A religion that you can take out into the world and you can put it into practice and it does work and it must. I want you to begin tonight by thinking with me about the commitment that these four men demonstrate to us and I want you to think about their commitment against the background of the challenges that they faced. Now, if you know your Bible and you know your Bible history, you know that the Assyrians had come in and they had taken the northern kingdom of, of Israel into captivity. After several years, many years, the Babylonians then became the dominant power in the world and they had conquered the Assyrians. And all of those that were captives, including the Israelites that were under the control of the, the Assyrians, were now under the control and the servants of Babylon. And in the process of time, Nebuchadnezzar and his army come up against Judah, the southern kingdom. And God had prophesied that that would be so. God had warned through Isaiah and many of the other prophets to Judah that if they did not repent and turn back to God with all of their heart, God was going to punish them. And the day of reckoning has now come. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he takes that southern kingdom of Judah under his control and his dominion. And he carries away in three different periods of time, he carries away some of the Israelites out of Judah and over into Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 1, we learn in verses 3 and 4 that he took of the, of the princes of the, of the Israelites, the king's descendants, and he took of the best and the brightest Israel, young men in whom there was no blemish, young men who were able to understand science and had a, a, a level of intelligence that had been demonstrated and they were to be carried down into Babylon and they were to be trained in the ways and the language of the Chaldeans. They took these men down there in essence and they put them into school, gave them room and board, all to train them to be able to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court as soothsayers and magicians and wise men and uh, so forth in the service of Babylon. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are four men among those who were carried away in that first wave of captives that's taken down into Babylon. 
Now think about three challenges. First of all, they face the environmental challenge. They are uprooted out of their home, out of their homeland, from among their own people, and they're carried away into a foreign land, a land where they do not know the language, a land where they do not know the customs, and a land where they do not know the ways, and they're put down there in amongst those individuals, wicked and ungodly people. Remember Habakkuk the prophet, that in chapter 1 of that uh, book, had a problem because he could not understand why God was not dealing with the wickedness of his people. And God revealed to him that he was at that very moment working on raising up a nation that he would use to punish Israel, or Judah rather, and it was the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk then had an even bigger problem because he, in essence, says, Lord, as bad as we are, they're worse, and you're going to use them? And of course, the theme of that book is, the just shall live by faith. Trust me, Habakkuk, I know what I'm doing, God tells him. And so here's these four young men that are carried away into Babylon, down in the midst of all of that pagan and wicked society. And though they face the environmental challenge, but that's not anything new or different. God's people have always faced that in the world, and we face it today. And here's where we can draw a parallel and see how their situation is applicable to us. In John chapter 17, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, I took in his prayer to God, I have given unto them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because I have chosen them out of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil, literally the evil one. We live in a world where if we live the Christian life, we can expect hostility. We can expect resistance. And especially in the age in which you and I are living. Now it's not yet come to the place of physical persecution for us in this country. But in this age of political correctness, in this age of the philosophy of relativism, where everybody is sure that you cannot know anything except that you can't know anything, a person who comes along and affirms that you can know the truth and you can live it and that those who aren't living it are not pleasing to God can expect to have resistance and opposition, even hatred. In John chapter 15, and oh, in about verse 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, I, I'm sure you're probably a lot like myself. I, I don't enjoy knowing that there are people that don't like me or that have something against me. Sometimes it may be because of my mistake or, or my sin, but I don't enjoy knowing that people resent me or hate me. But I have to accept the reality. We all have to accept the reality that if we make up our hearts and minds to be true to God, there are people in this world that are going to resent that. And remember in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, unfortunately, sometimes it can come even from those that are nearest and dearest to us. He said, think not that I'm come to bring peace, but a sword. For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against the mother, and the daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law, and a man's foe shall be they of his own household. And so we can expect, just like they did, to face that environmental challenge, to live in a world that is hostile and antagonistic, to truth and right, 
because every man wants to do that which is right in his own eyes like they were doing in the days of the judges. But not only did they face that environmental challenge, they also faced an identity challenge. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, all of their names have a meaning that connected them to Jehovah God. And their names are changed and they're given Babylonian names. Now why would they do that? Because there is the effort on the part of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to rob them of their Israelite identity and to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. And therefore, in so doing, to make them not loyal adherents to Jehovah God, but loyal adherents and servants to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, and to the gods of Babylon. And so they changed their names. And uh, we likewise face in our day and time the same kind of challenge, don't we? You know, I can remember as a boy, a teenager, sometimes going out of the house to go off somewhere with some friends, and you probably had the same experience. Did your mama or your daddy ever, maybe, as parting words say to you, don't forget who you are. Remember who you are now. And they meant to impress upon us, you've been taught and raised to live and behave a certain way. Don't forget who you are. You know, children of God need to remember that. In Romans 12 and verse 2, Paul warned and admonished, Be not conformed to this world. There's your environmental challenge. But by being conformed to this world, if we do that, we lose our identity as children of God. You see. Over in 1 John chapter 3, John said, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And therefore the world knoweth us not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. We are. Don't forget that. We need to remember that. In Galatians chapter 3, 26 and 27, Paul to the churches in Galatia said, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 14, he said, For as many as are led by the Spirit, they're the sons of God. Now we have received not the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. As many as are led by our, our, those that are the sons of God, the Spirit beareth witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God, he says. There in Romans 8, about verse 16. Notice the preposition there. He didn't say, The Spirit bears witness to our spirits. He bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God. And if we're the sons of God, then we're joint heirs with Christ. Have you ever thought about, and I'm sure you have, I'm sure it's been impressed upon you, but we need to be reminded from time to time of the privilege that we have, as we've done tonight, to bow our heads and humble our hearts and to pray, Our Father which art in heaven. Friends, everybody can't do that. God is not everybody's father spiritually. You remember over in John 8 when Jesus had that discussion with the Jewish leaders about fatherhood. They were claiming Abraham is our father. Then they said God is our father. And from a spiritual standpoint, neither one was true. He said in John 8, 44, you're of your father the devil. 
they could not honestly, in reality, pray to God in heaven and call him their father because they were not the spiritual descendants of God. As they clearly demonstrated in the rejection of Christ and the exaltation of their man-made traditions over the will of God. And so Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah go down into Babylon. They face not only the environmental challenge, they face that challenge to their identity. And children of God face that challenge today. We get out into the world and it can be very easy to forget that we are the children of God. And our conduct reflects either favorably or unfavorably upon our Heavenly Father. They faced a spiritual challenge then, and these are all connected, obviously. But they faced a spiritual challenge. Because in Daniel 1 in verse 5, the king made provision that they should be fed of the king's meat and the king's wine. He was taking care of them. These are servants. They're being put into school to be trained. And they're given room and board. And they would be allowed to eat of the king's meat and of the king's wine, that portion of it. But here's the problem that these four and all of the Israelites that were in such a situation faced. The Babylonians were Gentiles. Hence, they did not have the restrictions on their diet that the Jews did, the Israelites did. Leviticus chapter 11. There were certain foods that were unclean to them. There were certain things, they were kinds of food that they were forbidden to eat without defiling themselves. And so here is the king now saying, I will feed you of my meat, of my wine. But the problem is that the king's meat, which was all right for him to eat because he didn't have those same restrictions, might not be meat that was suitable for an Israelite to eat. In addition to that, there are some who even suggest and think that the king's meat, to eat of his meat and drink of his mind, might have in some way paid tribute to pagan gods. Whether that's so or not, we do know that it would be the case that it would be possible for Daniel and all of the Israelite men in that training ground to defile themselves with that food. And so there's the spiritual challenge they face. Will you live by your convictions or will you compromise them? After all, you're down here in Babylon. Nobody back over there in Judah is going to know. And it would seem to suggest from Daniel, the book of Daniel, that these are the only four Israelites that took such a stand. And since we're the only ones and you're the only ones, why not just do like everybody else is doing and go along to get along? Make the best of a bad situation. But you see, the will of God in the law of Moses for the Israelite did not change just because he's now down in Babylon as opposed to being up in Judah. The truth was still the truth in Babylon just like it was in Judah. And it would be just as wrong for him to eat that meat in Babylon as it would to eat it in Judah. And so their spiritual convictions, their spiritual values are challenged as they're down there in that environment with their identity being challenged. Now what are we going to do? And you see their commitment, don't you? They were unwilling to compromise. They weren't ugly about it, as we'll see. So here's their commitment. As you think about the challenges against which those commitments were, were placed. But I want you to notice something else about them. I want you to think about their character. And their commitment grows out of their character. You see, first of all, their heart. 
In Daniel 1 and verse 8, it says of Daniel that he purposed in his heart that he might not defile himself with the king's provisions. That would seem to suggest to us that somewhere, at some point in time, Daniel realized the, the situation, the conditions that he was going to face, and he made up his mind, I am not going to sin. I'm not going to eat of that meat. I'm not going to drink of that wine. Because I cannot do it. Either he knew it was unclean food, or he did not know and he would not take the chance. I want to suggest something to all of us tonight. Don't wait until you're faced with the temptation to commit a sin, to make up your mind beforehand you're not going to do it. Don't wait until you're faced with the temptation to tell a lie, to, to think about whether you're going to do it. Make up your mind now. I am not going to tell a lie. No matter what. I'm not going to do it. Don't wait till you're in the convenience store or wherever you might be and, and uh, you're sitting there and you see that lottery ticket and you think, maybe I wouldn't. No. Make up your mind. I'm not going to buy that ticket. I don't care how many they put out, where they put I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to play that silly game. Make up your mind before, you, before you're faced with that kind of temptation. If you are, now you may never be faced with it. It may not be something that bothers you. But make up your mind ahead of time. Daniel did that. You see, his heart. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, it says of Ezra in his heart that he set his heart to seek the will of God and to do it and to teach in Israel those statutes. There was his heart. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 when he's dealing with the matter of their giving. They had promised about a year ago that they would take up a contribution and they would make that contribution to help those who were in need. The Macedonians had set a wonderful example by doing so when they were in deep poverty and affliction. Jesus had set the example of uh, though he was rich and he became poor, poor, poor that for our sake we might be made rich. And now Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to keep that promise they had made to help and they're dragging their feet a little bit and he reminds them that the Lord accepts what we do according as we purpose in our heart. And that's true not only of our giving, that's true of everything we do. We purpose our hearts. You see their heart. And then you see not only that, you see their humility. Notice that Daniel, when he begins to speak to the prince of the eunuchs that were over himself and the other three young men, he doesn't uh, talk to him in a way that uh, reflects any kind of resentment or animosity. Notice in verse 12 he says, Let us, I beseech thee. That's true that he's a captive and he's a slave, but notice the courtesy, the humility on the part of Daniel. Uh, he could have uh, talked to that man and anybody else over him, and he could have said, look, I'll tell you right now, you're not big enough to make me eat that stuff. You don't have enough soldiers at your disposal to make me eat the king's meat. I'll die before I do it. And he might well have. But that wasn't the way he dealt with that man. He was courteous. 
he was respectful. And he talked to him in that tone and in that way. And there's humility on his part. Whenever we're talking to people, other people, and trying to get them to study the Bible and trying to help them see the truth, rather than be courteous, be respectful. Now, I know that you can be as courteous and respectful as you know how to be. You can say the right thing in exactly the right way, and there will still be some folks that will resent it and get angry with you. I know that's true because you read in the light about the life of Christ. Isaiah said in Isaiah 9, 6 that he would be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And there's some debate and discussion among the so-called scholars as to whether that's five different ways of referring to Jesus or four. And the debate centers around the word wonderful and counselor. Is he wonderful and counselor or is he a wonderful counselor? Well, the truth is he's both. But then you turn over to the New Testament and you read. He sometimes had people that got angry with him and hated and resented him because of what he taught. In John 9, they were going to pick up stones and stone him. There were those that were going to lead him out to a cliff and cast him off. He knew exactly how to tell the truth. And he knew exactly what tone of voice to use so that it would always be done in the best way and the right way. And yet there were still some people that hated him and resented him for teaching the truth. Now that doesn't give you and me the excuse to be ugly and discourteous to anybody. And then just pass it off as saying, well, they just don't know how to listen or they just resent it. No, no. We need to take a lesson from Daniel. Be courteous and be respectful to people. Several years ago, when I lived in McNinville, I had a lady that called. And in our ladies' Bible class, we'd been studying over some things. And one day we began to talk about some of the different beliefs and ideas of other religious groups. <clears throat> and we had been talking about the Seventh-day Adventist group. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, the Jehovah's Witnesses group. And this lady called on the phone one day, just a little while after class had ended, about 11.30, and she said, get your Bible and come over here right away. I've got some Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on my door. And so I got in the car and went over there. And I mean no disrespect to the Jehovah's Witnesses now tonight. I'm not in any way trying to reflect on them at all. But it turned out those folks were, uh, were not from the Jehovah's Witnesses. They were from the Mormons. But anyway, we had a study there that day for about an hour went back they came back the next week and we had another study and we didn't convert them they didn't convert us and when they left I asked them if they were coming back and they said no we won't be back you're not willing to listen and I tried in a kind way to simply say now we have shown you in everything you've presented the answer out of the Bible for what you've suggested and you need to understand that while we believe you're sincere we are every bit as sincere as you are we need to be respectful to people. People can be sincere and be in error. Saul of Tarsus is a perfect example of that, isn't he? But when we talk to them, be courteous and respectful. Daniel was here. You see his humility. You see also their honesty. Notice that while they are in Babylon, they do not withdraw themselves from any kind of interaction with other people. They will live 
live in Babylon, they will serve in Babylon as servants without compromising their convictions. And so you'll find, beginning in about verse 18, it says, At the end of days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king communed with them. Well, why did they go? Why didn't they just refuse to serve? Their character was such that they were willing to do what they were asked to do as long as they did not compromise because of their commitment, as we've already noted. So there was an honesty about them, a courtesy as they dealt with other people. And there's something about their character. Now let me close quickly tonight by asking you to think about the contributions they made. Number one, they are good examples. It sounds like from Daniel 1 in verse 8 that Daniel takes the lead because he's the one that purposed in his heart he would not defile himself with the king's meat. And here is the case of where perhaps if that be true, one man saying no emboldens the other three. And you never know when at work, at school, out in the ball field or wherever you might be, your willingness to stand up and take a stand for the truth and on the truth might be an encouragement to somebody else to do the same. Maybe another brother or sister in Christ. Or that may open the door of opportunity for you to study or talk with somebody about their soul simply because they respect the fact that you are willing to take a stand. He set a good example in refusing to eat of the king's meat. And so you have four who do not eat as opposed to just one. You also have the contribution of a godly emphasis. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah take the knowledge of God down into Babylon. Over in Daniel chapter 2, Verse 47, after Daniel has interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar makes this pronouncement, Now I know that your God is the God of gods. That will be the last time Nebuchadnezzar will exalt the name of God. But you see, Daniel and Hanani, Mishael and Azariah were carried down into Babylonian captivity against their will, no doubt. It was not of their own making. Everything we read about these men, they were faithful. They're suffering because of the sins of others. And yet when they go down into Babylon, they take a godly emphasis and the knowledge of God with them into Babylon. When you go to work tomorrow, will people know because you're a Christian things are different? Do people watch their language around you because they know you're a Christian? A couple of years ago, I, I enjoy playing golf. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I was playing with a fellow. And he'd hit a few bad shots and he'd said some uh, ugly words. And I was debating in my mind how long to let that go. And I didn't have to debate very long. He finally said, Stan, what do you try to do for a living? I kind of smiled inwardly to myself. I said, well, I try to preach. Oh, he could not apologize enough. Profusely he apologized. Man, I owe you an apology. I've been saying all these ugly words. And I told him, I said, listen, Jay. I said, the Lord heard you whether I did or not. Do people do that for you? 
Because they know you're a Christian, do they watch their language? Do they put away ungodly material, reading material and such, if you're around? Do the, do the dirty jokes cease because they know you're a Christian? That godly emphasis, you see. And even though people may not cease because they despise you or hate you or they want to provoke you or try to, at least they'll know you don't approve. Daniel and these other three young men took that kind of emphasis down into Babylon. And notice last of all there was a good end. Daniel chapter 1 in verse 21 says that Daniel continued even under the, the first year of the king Cyrus. Now Cyrus was a Medo-Persian king. Cyrus reigned after the fall of Babylon. Cyrus was the king who issued the decree recorded in Ezra chapter 1 that allowed the Israelite captives and all other captives to return back to their homeland. That's at the end of the seven-year period of captivity, folks. When you read about Daniel being put in the lion's den, do you picture him? I remember a while back studying through this, and I got on the Internet and looked for some illustrations, and practically every illustration that I found of Daniel in the lion's den showed a young fella, a, a young man, somewhere in the 20s maybe or late teens down in that lion's den. Daniel wasn't a boy when he was put in the lion's den. He was put in there by Darius. Darius was a mead. Babylon had already fallen. Daniel was an older man, perhaps in his 80s, when he was put in the lion's den. But you see, he had a good end. He continued all the way through. Why? God was with him. God blessed him. He took his religion and he didn't just hide it away. He didn't just reserve it for a temple or a place of worship. He didn't just use it when he was in the confines of his house. In fact, when the decree was signed that ended up in his being put in the lion's den, he prayed in his house with his windows open facing toward Jerusalem. Anybody could have seen him, and they did. And it worked. It always has in every generation, and it will in ours. Matthew 5 that we noted last night, you're the salt of the earth. You go to work tomorrow. That can be you. You'll take your religion with you and practice it. Go to the schoolhouse tomorrow, young people. You can be the salt of the earth as a child of God there. Setting a good example. You're the light of the world, verse 14. You can be out in the world living for God. You may not convert anybody, but at least people will know that you belong to God and you don't compromise. Your, your convictions or your values. And you stay on the Lord's side. It works because God arranged it and designed it that way. The only question is, are we working it? Are you faithful to the Lord? Are there people who want to become a Christian or have some interest or respect for Christianity because of you? If you take your religion outside the confines of this wall, they will. You may never know it. They may never tell you. They may admire you from a distance, but they will. And who knows where it might end. But there may be becoming a Christian, obeying the gospel. And if you're not doing that, you're denying the Lord. By refusing to live your Christianity, you're denying Him. 
And Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. If you're in this assembly tonight and you need to obey the gospel to become a Christian, won't you think about doing that tonight? And then you can go out in the world and be an example for good and have a godly emphasis upon the lives of others. Won't you think about doing that? Believe in Christ, then repent, confess your faith, and be baptized. If you've done that and you haven't been faithful, let brethren know tonight of your desire to be forgiven. Manifest your repentance by coming forth and let brethren pray with you and pray for you. We hope you will. While we stand together and sing.